Well, the, the title for today um, is The Way of Faith. And we are continuing to walk through the Sermon on the Mount. And we are continuing where we were last week, because the text really just leads into... Tom, it's fine. I'll just carry on with this thing. It's okay. The text, sometimes, you ever really read the Bible and you see a number that's a chapter divider, and you have to realize sometimes that the chapter divisions weren't in the original text, um, and sometimes we break text in weird places, and, and, and sometimes it helps us to understand the text if we just keep reading, and so I hope that those of you who were here last week have a little bit more understanding about the text as we transition into the text for today. Um, and because the title is The Way of Faith, I want to start by speaking about faith a little bit at the beginning. Hebrews 11, chapter 1, says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Look at those two words there. Faith is both substance and evidence. That means that if you have faith, you have substance. If you have faith, you have evidence. It means that as Christians who are told to walk by faith and not by sight, that our journeys should be ones that are led by faith, not by sight, by the substance of faith. And for anyone who's been walking with the Lord for more than a minute, you realize that faith sometimes is there and sometimes you don't know quite where it is. Hebrews 11.6 also says, without faith it is impossible to please God. Anyone that comes to God has to be, believe that God is, to start with, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him with diligence, who, who diligently seek him. And so in other words, what that's saying is that when you go after God in faith, he never lets us down. And the scripture also says in Romans 10 verses 17 that faith comes. That means so if you find yourself in a place that there is no faith, you have to trust that the scripture says that faith comes, faith arrives, faith appears, manifests where it wasn't beforehand. How does faith come? Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so the reason we spend so much time in church trying to preach the word of God is that it's how faith arrives, is how faith arises as we preach, as we declare, as we speak the word of God, as we hear the word of God, that it might be that faith, the substance, the evidence that is faith that gives us everything we need to persist in a faith journey arrives. And so that's our prayer, my prayer on this day, that as we hear the word of God, may faith arise. Amen. So our text today is Matthew 6 verses 22 to 34, which as I said is a continuation of the text from last week, and it begins in verses 22 to 23 with a warning about the danger of wrong sight, about the danger of having a wrong perspective. It says this, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. In other words, the light or darkness in us is all the fault of the eye. It's all the fault of whatever we are looking at. It's all the fault of our perspective. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great the darkness. And the context for that is what comes next. And what comes next is a presentation of two opposites, two contrasting things in which there is and there can be 
No mixture. Verse 24 says this. No one, does it say anyone? Anyone in here that is not no one? Does it say that some people, a few, one, a real special person, King of England, President of the United States, no one can serve two masters. For either he or she will hate the one and love the other, or else he or she will be loyal to one and despise the other. These next words, let's say them together. You, one more time, you cannot, just stick on that, you cannot, cannot, just can't do it. It's impossible. You cannot, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon, the scripture says. Now, how many of you in your Bible have the word, have ever seen this translated as money or worldliness or something else? Well, let's talk about that for a little, shall we? See, the, I, don't, I don't go into Greek a lot uh, or Hebrew, did Hebrew, Greek in seminary, try and avoid having to refer to them, try and keep it as simple as I can for you. The word that is translated as mammon appears four times in the New Testament, four times. Jesus uses the word mammon all four times. One reference is here. The other three references are in Luke 16, and they all come in the same passage in Luke 16, verses 9, verses 11, and verses 13. And this is the amazing thing. There is no other reference to the word mammon in the entire Greek literature. Nowhere else in, in Greek literature will you find this word mammon appear. Most times when you're looking at Greek words in the Bible and you're trying to understand what they mean, you can go to Greek literature and you can find how the word was used there and it will help us to understand how the word should be understood or interpreted in, in modern, modern day. But, but when you're dealing with a word that Jesus uses four times and only Jesus uses it and it's nowhere else in Greek literature, then you must be what does that do for you? What does that make you think? Does that make you think that we need to be a little careful about how we interpret it, right? And that we need to pay attention to the, how we interpret it. And instead of being presumptuous about it, we should do some work with the text. Because we are people who believe in the scripture, right? And if we believe in the scripture, that means we've got to pay attention to what the scripture says and not insert in it what other people have said, even the translators, right? So let's take a walk and have a look at it. Based on the text, this is what I would say is clear and is not clear. Is mammon simply money? No. I think that's a bad translation. I think it's a mistranslation. I think wealth is a mistranslation. Because money and wealth is not what this is all about. And there are other Greek words for money. If you go even through the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find three or four other words for money, Greek words for money. There is in Matthew 10 verses 19, when Jesus tells his disciples to go out and not to take a money belt... There's a word for money used there in Matthew 17, 27, when Jesus tells his disciples to go and look in a fish's mouth and take out money to pay his taxes. There's a different Greek word used there in Matthew 21, 12, when Jesus goes into the temple and throws out the money changers. There's a different word used there, and it's not this word. This word, as I say, appears four times in the New Testament. Jesus uses it, and only Jesus uses it. Is mammon... A demon Jesus knew by name. Oh, maybe. 
Somewhere in the hierarchy of demons is a demon called Mammon. And Jesus knows his name. And Jesus says, you can't serve him. You've got a choice, God or? Is that possible? Possibly. Is Mammon an alternative name for Satan? Is Mammon actually Satan's real name? Because when you look at the Hebrew, the word Satan is actually Ha-Satan. Ha is a, is, a, is, a, is a definer that says the accuser is how you actually translate it. So every time you see Satan, it's not a name, it's not a personal pronoun, it's a description of who he is. He's the accuser. So everywhere the scripture says Satan, it's actually saying the accuser. So it's not his name. So is Mammon the name of Satan? Maybe. If you think about the temptation in the wilderness, who is it that comes to Jesus? The accuser comes to Jesus. And one of the things he presents to Jesus is, he says, if you will bow down and worship me, what, do I, what will I do? I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Does that sound a little bit like what's going on in this text? It does, doesn't it? There's some similarity there. If you, all these kingdoms of the world and their glory, I will give you if you will worship me. Could he do that? It's easy for us to say that he's the father of lies and he was lying, but could he do that? Maybe in doing it, what he really means is I can do it, but you won't keep it. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world for a minute. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world for a cost. I'll give you a kingdom, the kingdoms of the world, if you trade with me your soul and your worship. But I'll take it back from you at some point. And when you die, you'll leave it. And you have no treasure stored up in heaven if you serve me, worship me, give me everything that I'm ask, asking you for. Is Mammon the name of the God of this age? Because in 2 Corinthians 4.4, there's a reference to the God of this age. And I had to check because I thought it said the God of this age, Satan. It doesn't. It just says the God of this age. There's no name used for him there who obscures the gospel, blinds with unbelief. Is that his name? Maybe. Is Mammon the name of the ruler, the king of this world, the world king, the ruler of the earthly, worldly system? As Jesus says in John 14:30, it could be. Because in neither of those passages is Mammon or Satan or any other name used. And so you get this nameless God of the age, this nameless ruler of the world, of the world earthly system, who has no name. And at some point, Jesus turns up and says, You can't serve God or insert the word. And it isn't money. You see why this is serious? Because if we think that this text just says you can't serve God and money, that's, that's not so bad. But if Jesus is actually saying you can't serve God and the power, prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this age, the king of the worldly earthly system whose name I know, Because it's clear from this text, if we're people of the text, can mammon be served? Yes. You cannot serve. Which means that there's a propensity, a tendency to do it, and a requirement that you do it. Can mammon be loved? Yes. Can there be loyalty to mammon? Yes. Is mammon a clear alternative to God? Yes. So we go back to verse 23. If the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Maybe saying this in context, if we think, if we say, 
that we're serving God, but we're really serving mammon, whoever he is. How terrible that is. How great the darkness is. You realize who Jesus is speaking to? He's not speaking to people of the world. He's talking to Christians. He's saying, Christians, if you say you're a Christian and you think you're serving me, but you're actually serving the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, the accuser whose name I know, how terrible that is. Because there can be no mixture. It's one or the other. And so it would be terrible if Jesus just left us in a place and he didn't kind of help us understand how to, how to diagnose. Because like the good doctor, he's not only giving us the, the, the disease, but he's also telling us how the cure comes about. And so for that, you have to look a little further in the text. So what does mammon actually promise us? And what I did was I had to take some of the text and I had to put it together in a way that makes it clear. In verse 25, it says, Therefore I say to you, do not... What's the next word? Every time you see worry, you just call that out. Let's start again. Therefore I say to you, do not about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Which of you by can add one cubit to his stature? Why do you about clothing? Therefore do not saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the ones who aren't the sons and daughters of God seek. Therefore, do not about tomorrow. What does mammon give us? It's all he's got. Worry, anxiety, stress, fear sleeplessness, and because of the worry, the anxiety, stress, fear, sleeplessness, what comes next? Coping addictions. When you look at the symptoms of worry, depression, anxiety, addictions to all sorts of things, it's because we are engaging in this transactional system where we get worry. In return for what? What is worry? Worry about our existence. Worry about food. Worry about drink. What's in my fridge? What will be in my fridge? Worry about clothing. What will I wear? Will it look good enough? Will people like it? Will I have enough money to buy clothes? Worry about shelter, physical well-being, the future. A series of what-ifs, right? What if I have nothing to eat next week? What if when I get old, I have no retirement? What if interest rates go down or up? What if my house goes into negative equity? What if I buy a house and the market changes right after I buy it? What if I sold my house and I didn't get as much as I should do for it. What if I do a currency transaction and the currency rate changes? What if I invest in stocks and stocks change? What if I get old and there's no one to look after me? What if I get old and sick and the social security system 
doesn't have any money left in it. What if somebody who I didn't vote for becomes president of the United States of America? What if they never get their act together in Congress and enact one more piece of legislation in the rest of my life? Seriously, worry, worry, worry. It's what mammon wants. And it's in a transactional system that says if we worry about it, if we focus on it, if we try and perfect it, if we try and make it better, if we serve it or him, if we give worry, which is our service, worry is our love, worry is our loyalty, if we do that, what do we get in return? The kingdoms of this world? Really? It's the same promise that was promised to Jesus in the wilderness. If you serve me, if you're loyal to me, if you bow down and worship me, if you do it according to my system, I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. Everything you need, everything you possibly could want, all you have until it is overflowing, until you've got to put it in barns to store it up, as Ben was talking about last week. But do we really get those things? You see, I think this is the deceit. Is that we might get them and think that we get them, but when we die, whose are they? What do we carry into the grave? Nothing. So Satan's promise in the wilderness to Jesus and Mammon's promise of if you worry and fixate and get anxious and follow and go after all these things, you'll get them, but you'll get them, but it's just like vapor, like grasping at the wind. You hold it, you think you have it, you think you own the house. You think you have a big bank account with money in it. You think you're stable of horses and your cars and all your possessions. You have them. But in your dying moment, you know you don't. And all he's done is he's deceived us and blinded us to the sting of death that is coming to everyone. Death is inevitable. And even if the journey to death is made more luxurious, if I had a 500 million pound dollar yacht like a Russian oligarch, I might not think that I'm ever going to die. If I had a 200,000 pound house in London, like a Russian oligarch, or did, I might think that I'm never going to die if instead of traveling in coach class in a seat that they signed at the gate, I travel in one of the beds that lies flat. I might think I'm never going to die. They let me on the plane first. They give me food with real cutlery, not plastic stuff. I don't just get Biscoff or whatever junk they give you on Delta. I get a real meal. I might begin to think that I'm never going to die because my wardrobe is filled and my fridge is filled and my bank account is filled and all of these things. In other words, this is another satanic deceit that you worry for things that are pointless things that you cannot keep, things that just make the journey towards the inevitability of death seem more pleasant, where instead, the scripture that Ben spoke about last week says, so where, lay up your treasure, where, in heaven, where the moth can't get it, where rust can't decay it, where it can't be destroyed because it is internal, eternal. So how do we live a different way to one that is filled with worry? Who would like to do that? I certainly would. 
Because worry's horrible, isn't it? I'm 55. Anna and I have been renting for 18 years. We left the UK, we sold a house that is worth a fortune now. I don't know what retirement looks like. I have no idea. My mother died uh, about a week ago. 94. Pancreatic cancer took her life in moments. And I looked at her in her frail, weak state, and I'm like, God, what kind of end is that? Who wants to fear an end of your life that might look like that? But what good is there worrying about it? Sometimes I just, like, God, I just don't know about, you know, I, I work in a church. I left a secular job. I was an attorney for 11 years. I left it because I thought that this was called seeking first the kingdom of God, which is where this passage is going to go. Am, am I? I don't know. I'm fully prepared to stand before God, and God said you were uh, maybe right, a little bit right. But this is the point. I shouldn't worry about it. The what ifs. What if I hadn't? What if we hadn't? What if we'd done this instead? What if this? Right? And the, at the age of 55, I'm telling you, the prospect of taking the mortgage out, now we have green cards and for the first time can. I'm petrified. I'm worried about the things I told you about at interest rates as the market at the high point. And if I buy now, what if there's a crash? What if it gets worse and more expensive? What if interest rates go up or down or whatever? What if I can't afford to pay it? All of those things. Jesus would say, forget it all. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. Wouldn't he say that to us all? So that's where the scripture goes. So how do, we, how do we begin to understand how to seek first the kingdom? So the text continues to tell us how to live a different way, how to not worry. It first he says in verse 16, 26, look at the birds. How many of you go out and stare at birds? Try it. Because this scripture says, look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns those lazy birds. If you weren't lazy bird, you would sow, you would reap. You would gather and store. Oh, maybe they get the point that gathering and storing in barns is pointless. Because what did Jesus call the man who built and gathered and stored into barns last week? A fool. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Who's more value than a bird here? Your hand isn't up. I'm going to ask you the question again. <laughs> Are you of who is of more value than a bird in this place? Raise at least one hand. Thank you. Consider the lilies of the field. My login to the bank account at the Bank of America used to say, consider the field lilies. I think it still does. They used to, you know you'd have a picture that showed up so you knew you were actually on the right thing. Consider the field lilies, because if I looked in and it was overdrawn or it was at zero or going the wrong way, I had to remember the lilies of the field. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Those lazy field lilies, they just sit there. <laughs> And I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory, this is fascinating, 
I'm not talking about the fine clothing that the women used to wear. Men, where are our fine clothes? Why do we just dress drably? What's this trend in the world that my son has that your butt has to hang out? I've got to see your underwear. This is describing something of a day and an era when Solomon was looking good. It's not speaking about, look at the fine array of the women of Solomon's days. It's saying Solomon was strutting it and had the best clothes on. But it's saying that not even Solomon was as finely and well-dressed as a field lily, right? Birds work hard. They rise early. They migrate. They sing praise to, the God, to God first thing in the morning. They understand community. Think they're talking to each other and singing praise first thing in the morning outside our bedroom windows and waking us up and saying, get up, you lazy human. The world has started. I don't know why you're still sleeping. We're up. We're getting about our day, even though we don't sow, reap, or store. And the lilies, I remember going to the Atlanta Botanical Gardens, one of Anna's favorite places, one of my least favorite places in the whole world. <laughs> but you have to do these things, man, right? Yes. <laughs> Three or four, even Nathaniel's got it, because even Nathaniel, Anna's birthday, is like, Mom, would you like to go to the Botanical Gardens? I'm like, son, nicely done. But remembering this scripture, in the inside bit, the hot bit where the lilies grow, I was looking at two of them side by side. The most intricate things. The most beautiful, elaborate designs. And I looked from the one there and to the one there, and they don't look even slightly like each other. How can God be so intent on creating uniqueness and individuality and beauty that even a lily he makes different from another lily because God could just have made every lily look the same. But he doesn't, and he didn't. And so as you consider the birds, as you consider the intricacy, the uniqueness growing from little seeds, even though they're temporary, sometimes in scripture, it tells us that we've got to look at nature. And when you look at the birds and you look at the field lilies, you get something that this beautiful, uniquely, intricately designed, different from every other lily is going to one day fade. It's the same with us. And so in verse 30, it continues. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you, of little faith? And the answer to the question is, yes. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Isn't that amazing? He's telling us that he knows that we need to eat, and we need clothes to wear, and we need shelter, and we might need some money when we're old, and we might meet, need medical care where we're, when we're old. And we might, might need family to care for us. But don't seek those things. 
Don't make them our priority. And certainly do not worry about them, which is what mammon is making us do. Worry, 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 with an endless series of what-ifs. Instead, Christians, seek first, prioritize, make decisions for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek Jesus. Seek the king of the kingdom. Seek to know his will. Seek to know what his will for you is in every situation. Before you spend, before you accumulate, before you sell, before you devote time, talent, treasure to anything, ask God, what do you want me to do here? Because the world tells me that I should do this, and there's endless wisdom and endless experts on television and in books and all over the place that will tell us how to make decisions. But instead, I encourage you to say, Jesus, what do you want? What do you want with my day? What do you want with everything I have? This is ridiculous. We quibble about 10% in this tithe. It's all God's. There's never a sense in which we say, I give you 10%, therefore I can do what I like with the 90. Does it say that in Scripture? It's all his. How much of our time is ours? None of it. How much of our talent is ours? None of it. Who gave it to us? God. Who sustains us in it? God. And so you see, when it comes back and says you can't serve God and mammon, it's saying get your mind in a place of understanding through looking at birds and considering plants where you get that God takes care of them and you're more value than them. And so why worry? And why serve mammon? Because he's a liar. And the transactional system that says, if you worry, you get this, is actually a false one. Because at the end, we need treasure that endures and lasts, and that is in heaven. And so the last words there are, and all these things shall be added. How many of you can testify to that? That you've made decisions that you thought were not worldly ones, that you did your best, and this is all it really comes down to. We're doing our best to make a decision for the kingdom, and somehow it worked out. I remember when Anna and I think, like 18 years ago, we put, sold the house and put the money in the bank and left the law job and left London and came out here to go to seminary, and the money ran out after two years, and I don't even know how we're still here sometimes. And Anna used to share stories of me giving her budgets to go to the store and being in tears because my budget was so small and how it worked out, we don't know. And how the bills got paid and how we ate. I don't know. Other than this, and it's your story. Those of you who've come to places and made decisions and gone to different parts of the country, different parts of the world, who've quit jobs, who've contemplating quitting jobs, who've married particular people, who've said no to other people, who've made choices for calling and, and, and professions and things that you know were God's calling, at the end of the day, has God ever let you down? 
So that's the faith that we, we stand in today, and it's the faith that we walk forward into the future, knowing this simple thing, God cares for his own. Cares for the birds, cares for us even more. Cares for the lilies, cares for us even more. So why worry? Why worry? Unless there's something or someone urging you to. And so I'm going to invite the um, band back up. Um, now, I just want to close with three very simple, practical steps for you. Um, I've got to go get a plane at 1.55. Um, my mother's memorial is in Jamaica tomorrow. Um, pray for me. My four sisters asked me to preach the memorial sermon. Um, I will see how that goes. But three very practical steps. Simple. I always want to make it simple for you. And I, every time I'm always preparing things, I would think, if I can't do this, I can't tell them to do it. Because one of the criticisms in the scripture really was that the Pharisees loaded people with things that they couldn't do themselves. <laughs> and they made it hard for people to walk. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you three things that work for me. The first thing is you've got to commit to being an instrument of righteousness. To seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness means that you have to commit to being an instrument not for unrighteousness, but for righteousness. And that comes from Romans 6.13. It means that you say that these hands that used to steal and slap and do violence and things, don't do it anymore. And these eyes that used to look at the wrong things, look at the right things. And this body that was used for the wrong things is now used for the right things. And these feet that used to go to the wrong places go to the right places. And this time that was misused is now properly used. That's what it means to be an instrument of righteousness. And then you can look also at that passage in 2 Timothy 2.21. It says that in a great house there are vessels for honor and dishonor. But you become a vessel for honor when you cleanse yourself of iniquity. So the very beginning of saying I'm going to seek first the kingdom is saying I've got to get the sin out of my life. And it's not sitting around. The scripture actually says who he cleanses himself of. Do you realize that that's not a sit around and wait for God to do it command? Elsewhere in the scripture it says if by the power of the spirit I put to death the works of the flesh then we live. In other words, God's given us the ability, the power, the strength to cleanse ourselves of all the things that we're doing and do that we shouldn't. And that's the beginning. So firstly, commit to being instruments of righteousness. How many of us? All of us. Commit to being vessels for honor, not dishonor. That's the starting point. That's the first thing. Secondly, commit to being transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's a journey. That scripture proceeds with the phrase that says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't do the worldly things. Don't think in a worldly way. Don't live in a worldly way. Don't make decisions like the world makes. Don't take the advice of the world. Instead, be transformed how? By the renewing of your minds. You have to read the scripture. You have to pray. You have to have conversations with brothers and sisters of God. You have to listen to sermons. You have to soak yourself in the word. You have to. It's the only way that the minds that otherwise have been steeped in ways of thinking 
that the worldly are renewed. And then we begin to work out what God's will is because the scripture says that as we're transformed by the renewing of your, our minds, Romans 12, 2 says, then we will know the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So if you don't know how to seek first the kingdom, commit to renewing your mind, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And as you begin to walk in an ever-increasingly renewed mind, you begin to get a sense of what the kingdom is. It's like, oh, now I get it. Oh, I thought it was this. Now I see a little more clearly. And then the final thing I want to leave you is, is this, is commit to walking with the sight we're able to see by. A passage often read at weddings, 1 Corinthians 13, ends with this. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. Then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. Look at that. None of us is going to get this perfect. The scripture says we fall short of the glory of God. How far short is that? Is it this short? Is it that short? Is it the height of the ceiling short? You know why I know we've got to fall down and worship God and cry our eyes out and bawl and throw crowns down? It's because it ain't even that short. It's the height of the heavens short. We fall so far short of the glory of God that if we're worrying about being perfect, because so often some of us say, I can't do something for God because what if I get it wrong? That's another what if. Anytime you hear yourself just saying, what if, what if, what if, you're like, oh, hold on a sec. That's that mammon trying to make me worry. Yeah. Walk in the light that you have. Be content to stand before Jesus and for him to say, as I am, you could have continued being a lawyer. <laughs> it was fine. Didn't need to leave England. Didn't need to sell the house. Yeah, in fact, you ended up in Grace Marietta. That was just luck. <laughs> Don't be so righteous, man. Don't think that that meant that you were walking in the right path. <laughs> it's that easy. The light you have, walking it. Start with Commit to being an instrument of righteousness. Secondly, commit to being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And thirdly, commit to walking with the sight you're able to see, see by. Now let us reflect on those things. And let us commit or recommit to Jesus, the King of the Kingdom of Heaven, as we take communion.